Well, good morning, everyone. If you're out in the entryway, you can make your way in and find your seat, and we'll get started. If we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and if you're visiting here with us, we're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. And uh, we're going to get into God's Word together. Uh, but to be honest, it's a difficult Sunday to preach. It's a difficult Sunday to stand up here and preach God's Word. Uh, the message I was preparing this week looked quite a bit different than what I'll say this morning. Um, Mark came in my office Friday morning and I was a bit oblivious to what was going on. And uh, when he told me, I was in, in uh, disbelief for a bit. And your mind begins racing and your emotions are swirling. And so it's a bit difficult to preach this morning. But the difficulty comes from my own weakness, not, not the relevancy of God's Word for us this morning. And so... We just need to be clear about that because oftentimes after a tragedy, uh, you'll hear athletes and coaches and you know, sports commentators talk about how difficult it is to play and how awkward and even inappropriate it seems to play a game in the midst of such terrible things that are going on. It's difficult to throw a ball around and play a game while families are mourning. But the difficulty for me in preaching this morning isn't the same as the difficulty that athletes uh, feel after tragic events because while sports has little relevancy to suffering, the Word of God is completely relevant. In the midst of tragedy and loss, football and baseball provide little comfort and no hope, but the Gospel is teeming with comfort and hope for us this morning. So although maybe for some of us it was hard to come to church this morning, maybe for some of us it was hard to sing and worship this morning, there's nowhere else we can go to receive the comfort that we need than to God's Word. Because even if our heart and our flesh may fail, God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. He is our refuge in times of trouble. He is the one who heals the brokenhearted. He is the one who strengthens us, helps us, and upholds us with His righteous right hand. So to stand here and preach is hard just because of my own weakness, not because of the weakness of God's Word. Because God's Word is as relevant to us on Friday morning as it was Thursday night. As I was preparing this week, I was getting ready to preach a follow-up to my message a few weeks ago on the tongue, and although it looks quite a bit different after Friday, we're still going to look at what Proverbs says about our tongues. Last time we looked at how the tongue has the power of life and death, and we focused a lot on how we can bring death with our words. This morning, we're going to focus a lot on how we can bring life with our words and specifically how we as a church are to use our tongues in the midst of tragedy and suffering. So my hope is that it's as applicable to us after this weekend's event as it is to uh, be with a friend who has a terminal diagnosis or uh, the other mountains, as Gary 
has spoken of already of suffering and pain that we all go through. So let's pray and then we'll jump into what God's Word says. So Father, we're so thankful for your presence already with us this morning. We're so thankful for the way that you've been speaking and the comfort and the hope that you've already brought through the songs that we've sung, through the scriptures that were read. And so, Father, we just pray that you would continue to do that. We pray as we look now at your word, we pray that you would continue to bring hope, that you continue to bring comfort. We pray that you would be front and center for the next 40 minutes, that you and your grace and your son Jesus and what he's done for us will get the glory and the praise that you deserve. So we just ask that you would come now and help us as we read your word, as we look to apply it to our lives. We are in desperate need of your spirit. So we pray that your spirit would come and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Our main verse is the same verse that we looked at last time, which is Proverbs 18. 21 that tells us that the tongue has the power of life and death. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So last time we saw how through deceit and gossip and flattery and criticism, our tongues can wreak havoc. Our tongues can tear people down, tear relationships apart. But in the same way, God has given us our tongues with the power and the potential to bring so much life. And so our question this morning is, when we are aware of others' suffering, when we witness tragedy, when those we live with, work with, ride the bus with, are experiencing agony and pain and loss, how can we then use our tongues to bring life? How can we use our tongues to bring life? The tongue has the power of life and death. So we'll look at a few verses in Proverbs. We'll jump around a bit. And uh, Proverbs has a lot to say about not just what we aren't to do with our tongues, uh, but what we should do with our tongues as well and the words that we should say. So the first way, I have four things I want to point out. And the first one is the major way we give life to others with our words is by not using any. By not using any. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And 11.2 says that a person of understanding remains silent. Our words can be like medicine to those who are hurting, but so often we speak without knowing the full situation or we speak with little understanding and so our words can sicken rather than strengthen. And it's like giving someone a random bottle of medicine and telling them to take a bunch without understanding their illness or ever reading the label. The person would be better off if we just left the medicine in the cupboard. In the same way, sometimes the best approach is to say nothing at all, to leave your words in the cupboard, so to speak. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And so after tragic events that have unfolded like this weekend or in a friend's suffering 
Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, says, be careful about talking too much. Be careful about talking too much. Don't be too quick, too quick to tweet your opinion. Don't be too quick to comment. And don't be too hasty with your remarks. And even when the suffering hits close to home, and we're not just commenting online from afar, but we're actually there seeing those we love in suffering and tragedy, we can feel the need to talk. But the problem is that the more we talk, the more likely we are to stray off from helpful truth and begin either just saying empty religious cliches or unbiblical statements like if God could have prevented this, He would have, or this has happened because of sin in your life, or a thousand other unhelpful, unbiblical comments. No wonder James says that we should be quick to hear and slow to speak. So in the midst of tragedy, let's not be too quick to speak. Let's not be guilty of careless words spoken to someone enduring great suffering. And sure, it can be a bit awkward to sit in silence with somebody overwhelmed with life, someone depressed with life, and to say nothing. But a sufferer, someone going through pain, and especially when the pain is raw, they need a warm presence, not fixing words. They need a warm presence, not our fixing words. And it can be tempting to try to fix things. I know I, more often than not, try to fix things with my words when it's best to just remain silent. And I think sometimes, at least for myself as Christians, we can feel a kind of pressure to say the exact right thing. We can feel a bit of pressure to say the perfect thing. And it can be hard to say to a friend or a coworker, I don't know. I don't know why this is happening to you. But we want to fix things. But in Romans 12:15, Paul tells us that we are to weep with those who weep, not provide theological answers to those who weep. When someone's world feels like it's spinning out of control, Spouting off the 12 biblical reasons for why this suffering has happened can be like rubbing salt in a wound. And sometimes we can be so focused on giving the right answer that we forget that there's real flesh and blood beside us that are going through deep sorrow and pain. Karen won't really like this story, but a few years ago we were out geocaching with our family and our daughter Peyton was walking on these big concrete blocks, these big like road lane divider type blocks, and she was walking on top, and, and uh, her foot slipped, and it went down in between two of them, and uh, she wasn't able to get her hands out, and so her face hit the concrete block in front. And uh, it was probably one of the worst injuries that our, our children have had to, to deal with. And uh, when it happened, there's a moment of, of shock. And then I, I, I scooped Peyton up and, and her face was blood and, and held her against my chest. And we were able to get to my friend who's a, who's a dentist and he was able to help her and right away. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a hard time. 
And although she didn't ask why at the moment, if she had, how cruel it would have been for me to stand over her and say, well, Patey, first of all, you know, you shouldn't have been walking on the concrete blocks. And second, you should have been more mindful of the loose stones on the top. And uh, I think a better decision would have been to step over and not try to jump over. All of those would have been good and correct answers to the, to the question why this happened. But they wouldn't have helped. So when people are going through great trauma and suffering, they don't want answers because answers don't reach where it hurts in the heart. Like Peyton, often they just need to be scooped up and held tight. And so if you take a friend to the doctor and they receive a devastating diagnosis, there may be a time to talk to them about the complexities of the sovereignty of God, but the drive home is not one of those times. It's a time to weep with those who weep. And so we shouldn't underestimate the value of your presence with those who are enduring hardships. We shouldn't underestimate our value of our presence with those who are enduring hardship. We need to listen, be empathetic, and let their, their sorrow become our own. Let their sorrow become our own because when we do we are giving people a glimpse of the character and the nature of Jesus Jesus presenced himself with us Jesus came to us Jesus was God with us we were a people in the brokenness and the misery of sin and he didn't stand far off he came to us and he knew what the world needed the world didn't need a rock star the world didn't need a superstar the world didn't need flash and pizzazz. The world needed, needed a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. They, the world needed a man who was able to carry our sorrows and carry our grief. There's an amazing story in John 11 where Jesus receives the news that his good friend Lazarus has died. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's approached by Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and Mary asks Jesus the why question. <clears throat> she asks Jesus the why question. Lord, why weren't you here? You could have stopped this. And she asks Jesus a question, but it appears Jesus can't even speak. It says that he wept. And all he could do is ask, where have you laid Lazarus? He's troubled. He's deeply moved. Jesus is there standing in front of the grave of Lazarus and he's weeping. And the fact that Jesus stands there weeping is startling to us because Jesus arrives at the scene of the death of Lazarus with two things that we do not come to tragic events with. First, Jesus comes with all the answers. Jesus comes with all the answers. Jesus knows why Lazarus died. He knows how that event is going to be used for multitudes to give glory to God. He knows that in a few minutes all the tears will be turned to great rejoicing. He has all the answers to all the questions. When you and I enter these tragic situations, we have no idea. So he, first, he comes with all the answers. Second, he comes with all the power as well. 
He can do something about the problem. You and I can't do a thing to undo it. We can't resurrect anything. But Jesus arrives at the tragic death of Lazarus, holding the keys of death and life. He can reverse the whole situation, and He does. He reverses death and brings Lazarus back to life. He knows He is going to do that. He has all the answers to all the questions. He has all the power to fix all the problems. And yet He stands there with Mary and Martha and He weeps. And why does He weep? Because Jesus is perfect love. He doesn't close His heart to those who are going through sadness. He doesn't refuse to enter into their sorrow. He weeps with those who weeps. So there's nothing wrong with weeping at a time like this. There's nothing wrong with grieving along with sufferers. It's not a sign of immaturity or weakness. Jesus was the most mature, powerful person that's ever been on the face of this earth. And He stood before the tomb of Lazarus and He bawled His eyes out. And if Jesus enters into the grief and is here weeping alongside Mary and Martha, when He knew all the right answers to give and He even had the power to remove the suffering itself, then what reason do we have for standing far back and not letting the suffering of others break in on our own comfort? What reason do we have for coldly spouting truths at those still reeling from fresh wounds? Do we need to point people to truth? Do we need to tell people how they should believe and turn to God? Absolutely. But if we're just about the ministry of truth and we're not about the ministry of tears, then we're not representing Jesus well to the world. We need to be about both. Because evangelism without empathy isn't Jesus. Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus and he wept. He is a weeping God. I think we need to let that sink in a bit. He is a weeping God. So when you think about the mountain in your life, like Gary was talking about, God has the power to remove the mountain. But you also need to understand that Jesus weeps over the mountain as well that there's a compassion and an empathy in Jesus that just blows us away. That He stood before Mary and Martha with this mountain of the death of their brother and He has all the power to remove the mountain. He knows all the answers to the questions about why the mountain is even there. And He stands and He takes a few minutes and He weeps over the mountain. That's the compassion of Jesus. That's the empathy of Jesus. John Calvin in his commentary on Romans 12 said, Such is the nature of true love that one prefers to weep with his brother rather than to look at a distance on his grief and to live in pleasure or ease. 
Such is the nature of true love that one prefers to weep with his brother rather than to look at a distance on his grief and to live in pleasure or ease. Father, I just pray that You would make us a church that weeps with those who weep. I pray that You would make us a church that is compassionate like You are compassionate, that is empathetic like You are empathetic. Make us a church that is quick to listen and slow to speak, that we don't say careless words in the midst of tragedy. That we weep with others over suffering, that we weep over sin that has broken our world. We weep over those who don't know You. Father, it just seems for myself that we're so cold and we're so distant and so little are our hearts stirred and moved by the suffering of others. And Father, I just pray that You would break in. We want to be like You. We want to be a church that is full of faith that You can move the mountain. But we also want to be a church that weeps over the mountains in people's lives as well. Save us from being a church that is more concerned with the ministry of truth than we are about the ministry of tears and make us a church that weeps with those who weep. Proverbs points us to be a church that listens and weeps Francis Schaeffer said, if I only have an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. So after we have listened and our minds understand and our hearts are stirred by the situation, then what should we say? What should we say in those five minutes, as Francis Schaeffer said? We spend 55 minutes listening. How should we spend those five minutes of speaking? How can we use our tongues to give life to others in the midst of suffering? We can listen and weep. We can also comfort and encourage. Proverbs 12.18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So our words can cut and our words can comfort. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Another translation says, Worry weighs a person down, and encouraging word cheers a person up. The point is that words have a tremendous impact on those we speak them to. And so we need to see the power of our words here. Look at what it's saying. The worry, the anxiety, on my life, in my life is weighing on me. It's weighing me down. I have struggles. I have suffering. I have loss. I have stress. All these things make me feel heavy like I'm being crushed under the weight of them. And then you come and you speak an encouraging word to me and suddenly I'm lifted. Anxiety weighs a person down, but a good word cheers him up. 
when life is hard and anxiety has weighed me down and the worries and the cares of life are causing the trajectory of my heart to be downward, a good word can change its course. An encouraging word can change its course. When I'm anxious, when I'm full of worry, when life is bearing down on me, what do I need in that moment? Proverbs says I need an encouraging word. I need an encouraging word that lifts my heart. That is an amazing, amazing verse. Because notice it doesn't say worry weighs a man down, but a change of circumstances cheers him up. It doesn't say a removal of suffering cheers him up. Nothing in my situation has changed. The suffering is still there. The pain is still there. The hardship is still there. The stressors are still there. The only thing that has changed is that these ears heard your mouth say a word and my heart was lifted. That's amazing. Words that you spoke with your mouth, I heard with my ears, and my heart is filled with gladness. Nothing else has changed. Worry weighs a man down, but a good word cheers him up. Our words to one another, about one another, not only describe reality, they also create reality. So, as an example, if I tell my kids over and over that they'll never amount to anything and that they're worthless, that is creating a death and a destruction in them. If I encourage them and I build them up, that is creating a life in them. John Owen said that God loves life into us. God loves life into us. And so in the same way, when I use encouraging words, I am loving life into those I speak to. To encourage literally means to put courage into someone. So when we encourage, it's not just a nice compliment. It is putting courage into someone else to enable them to do something that they couldn't do previously. Courage comes from hope. A hope in something stronger than what we fear. And so when we encourage people, it's like we're giving them an infusion of hope. People become discouraged when their hope is low. When we encourage people, we are putting hope in them so that they can take courage and do what they previously couldn't do because they were too discouraged to do it. We need an infusion of hope so that we can keep fighting the good fight of faith. And so where do we find this hope? We find hope in the promises of God. We find hope in the promises of God for us. And so you see, encouragement is more than just a nice compliment. Oh, doesn't your hair look nice? No one cares how their hair looks when they're in the midst of suffering. That's not an encouragement that helps us. Encouragement is an infusion of hope. And so when Proverbs says anxiety weighs a man down, but a good word cheers him up. When Paul says encourage one another and build each other up, it's not just a call to niceness. It's not just a call to politeness. It's not a call to shallow compliments 
or flattery. It's a call to put courage in people by pointing them to the promises of God. Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction that Your promise gives me life. This is my comfort in my affliction that Your promise gives me life. God's promises give us life and comfort. They are able to lift our heart out of the weight of our anxieties. So it's a bit like this. If our encouragement is just, you can get through this, you're strong, you're going to heal, it's like I, I'll use Gary, it's like I took Gary and I threw him up in the air. But what happens a millisecond later? The gravity brings him back down. And so if our compliments, our encouragement are just, you can do this, you're strong, you can heal, it might lift us for a millisecond, but very soon the gravity of the situation brings us slamming back to earth. What we need is something bigger than ourselves to be attached to. So if I say, God is with you, Gary. If I begin to tell Gary the promises of God, it's like I'm tying a rope around Gary and attaching it to the big hot air balloon of the promises of God because we need something that's bigger than Gary. We need something that is able to to uh, counter the gravity of the situation. And it's only God's promises that do that. And so I tell Gary, be strong and courageous because the Lord is with you. And so I'm tying the rope around Gary. I'm attaching him to something greater than the situation that he's in, which is the promises of God. And now Gary is lifted. Gary is lifted now. Gary's heart is lifted. The anxiety of the situation doesn't weigh him down because the promises of God are greater than the anxiety that he's in. And so we need to encourage others with the promises of God. We need to be tying our friends who are in the midst of suffering to the rope that's attached to the big hot air balloon of the promises of God. I hope that makes sense. Maybe. Anyway. You should try to throw Gary up. <laughs> I could. Relevant. But we need the promises of God. We need the Lord as your light and your salvation. Whom shall you fear? The Lord is the stronghold of your life. Of whom shall you be afraid? We need blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. We need the promise of He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We need the promise of cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And we need the promise of Revelation 21 where it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new these are the promises that we need to encourage us and to lift our heart there these are life-giving comfort providing promises god just didn't tell joshua be strong and courageous and don't be dismayed period 
he gave him reason. He said, be strong and courageous and don't be dismayed for I am with you. So when we see the power in our words and how they can affect us to the point that even if our circumstances don't change, our whole attitude and our countenance can change because someone speaks a good word to us, how the words of others actually put courage into us, then I can think of nothing better for a church to excel at than to excel in encouragement. If we are a church that excelled in encouragement, what a place that would be. Because I've never met anyone that's too encouraged. I've never met anyone that said, no, I'm, I'm too encouraged right now. Not one. When Jesus spoke of his upcoming death, his disciples found it difficult to comprehend the tragedy of their leader dying. And so he asked them if they wanted to leave him. And Peter said, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so church, we now carry the mission of Jesus on earth. So when tragedy and chaos and suffering remind the world of just how fragile and broken it is, where else can they go for true comfort? Where else can they go for true encouragement? Where else can they go to find hope? We alone have the words of life. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down but a good word makes him glad. And so as people who've, whose lives have been changed by the grace of God, church, we always have a good word to say. Your mom might have said, if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. But because of Jesus, we always have a good word to say. We always have a good word to say in the darkest days, in the deepest valleys that people go through we have hope to speak we have hope to speak we're to listen and weep we can encourage and comfort thirdly <clears throat> we can advocate and protect proverbs 31 8 and 9 tells us to open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Some of us are in the middle of suffering. Some of us are in the middle of that mountain. Some of us have endured a tragic situation. Not many of us only know suffering. Not many of us experience tragedy as a daily event. The events of this weekend, they, they shake us, they shock us, and well, they should. But as we heard last week when Rick and Bronwyn spoke, for many people in the world, that's just daily life. There are people who endure loss daily. There are people who grieve daily. We can be very thankful that it's not a daily event for us, but we should also be mindful that there's many people in the world who tragedy 
is just what they wake up to every morning. Last week, Rick and Bromwin told us that there are as many slaves in the world today as there are people living in Canada. You just think, how do you even wrap your head around that type of a number? And so in all the ways that Proverbs instructs us to use our tongues, the very last chapter in Proverbs says, don't forget to be an advocate. Don't forget to be a protector. It reminds us there are, there are those around us, there are those in our world who are destitute, there are those who are poor and needy, and so often the people who need so much help are the same ones who don't have a voice and who are mistreated. And so we as the church are to speak for them. We are to raise our voice because they can't raise their own. We are to comfort and encourage and weep, but we're also to fight and defend and protect. Oftentimes there's very little we can do to bring change to someone's suffering, but when that suffering is a result of injustices in their life, then we're to raise our voice to bring change for that situation. And this isn't just a nice option for the church. It's the obligation of the church to speak up for those who have no voice, to defend the weak and the poor and those being crushed because Jesus has spoken up for us. In our sin, we were the ones who were destitute. We were the ones who were poor and needy and a prisoner and a slave to sin. Before God, there wasn't a word that we could say to save ourselves and Jesus came and proclaimed freedom to the prisoners. Jesus came and spoke up for us when there wasn't a word that we could say to save ourselves. He stood in the middle of that temple and read the scroll of Isaiah and said that he had come to proclaim prisoners free. When we didn't have a voice, Jesus was our advocate. When we couldn't free ourselves, Jesus proclaimed us free. And so now only Jesus can free us of a life complaining about our own selfish desires not being met and bring us to a life where we advocate for the unmet rights of others. Only Jesus can do that. And it's not just a nice option. It's the church's obligation from the slave in Uganda to the unborn, to the refugee, to the foster child, whoever it might be. The Bible calls us to raise our voice for those who don't have one. So as tragic as these weekend's events are, they should also be a reminder to us that for some people, they're much more regular. They're much more regular. And the role that the church has in seeing justice come for those situations. 
in the midst of tragedy and suffering, how can we use our tongues to bring life? We can listen and weep. We can encourage and comfort. We can advocate and defend. And lastly, we can pray and we can pray. We can pray and pray. Proverbs 15.29 says that God hears the prayers of the righteous. So we who have put our trust in Jesus have been made righteous before God, and so we, can become, we, we are now confident that God hears our prayers. God hears the prayers of the righteous. Hebrews 4 says that we can now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. So those grieving, those suffering, those experiencing heavy hearts, they need us to be praying. They need us to be praying. Whether they recognize it or not, whether they believe in God or not, our neighbors need us to pray. Our city needs us to pray. Our nation needs us to pray. So as Ben said, tonight at 7.30 at our building, on 487 Brunswick Street, we're going to gather and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for our city. We're going to pray for a new building so that we can continue to serve our city. We'll pray for the families of those who lost their lives. We'll pray for our police officers and our RCMP. We'll pray for our mayor and others in leadership. We will pray for all those involved in the weekend's tragedy. Because the greatest use of our tongues that we have is to call out to God on behalf of others. So when we gather tonight and we pray, we're believing that they're not just empty words that are spoken in the four walls of 487 Brunswick Street. We believe that as we pray, God will work. Ephesians 3.20, when Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, that means He's able to do bring far more abundant comfort to those who are grieving. It means He's able to bring far more abundant wisdom to our police officers. It means He's able to bring far more abundant strength to our nurses and to our doctors. It means He's able to bring far more abundant peace to those who are wrestling and have questions. He is able to do far more abundantly, not just period, but far more abundantly than what we ask. James says you do not have because you do not ask. And so tonight we're going to gather and we're going to ask. We're going to ask God to move in our city. We're going to ask God to do what only He can do. <clears throat> Whatever suffering it is, big or small, it's sure to bring lots of questions, and there's many that we don't have answers for. <clears throat> but we do know that in times of tragedy and suffering, our tongues have the power of life and death. So whatever it might be, whether it's a mass shooting or a coworker who has received a terminal diagnosis, 
the church is the conduit for God to bring healing through our empathy like God, through our encouragement toward God, for our advocacy on behalf of those made in God's image, and in our asking of God for Him to move. The local church is the hope of the world. And our tongues have the power of life and death. Why don't we stand and just pray together in light of God's Word. And Joel and the team can come up. Father, we just start off by saying we love you. We love you. We're very thankful for your promises this morning that you are near to the brokenhearted. We're very thankful that we can say confidently that you're the God of all comfort who is able to comfort us in any affliction. And so our prayer this morning, Father, is that we would use our words to bring life. That in a world that is cold and dark and isolated, that we as a church would be a place of warmth and light and friendship and help. That we would be a place where those who are weeping find others to weep with them. That the hopeless find hope and encouragement. That those who don't feel that they have no voice and are destitute and poor and needy find an advocate and a defender and a protector and a strong voice. And Father, I pray that we'd be a praying church. Forgive us of the many times that we just... Don't place the importance on prayer that we see in Your Word. And we don't really believe that You act on behalf of our prayers. And I pray that You would stir our faith. That You'd stir our compassion for our city. That You'd stir our compassion for the poor and the needy. That You'd stir our compassion for those who are mourning, those who are grieving. And we would not sink into discouragement and hopelessness, but we'd use that to raise our voices to You that you would move on behalf of your church. We're so thankful that though the battles rage and the earth shake, that we can sing, our Lord reigns, that you reign above it all. Thank you for your reigning for your loving for your mercy and your grace towards us help us to communicate that to the world around us by what we say in jesus name amen let's sing